as Paul said, for the next three weeks we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy. Um, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian and you're going to be here uh, for the next few weeks, then why not read through these early chapters? It might be a book you know well. It might be a book you've not really read very much of. And if you're new to Christian things, oh, then really for you this book might seem very unfamiliar. But, you know, if you come for the next three weeks, uh, you'll see better that the whole Bible is one consistent story. And that the God of the Old Testament is just the same as the God of the New. You, you sometimes meet people who say very silly things, like the Old Testament is really a, a different kind of God from the New Testament. That, that's really a, a very silly thing to say for anyone who's read it. But we're going to be looking at this. Why not read through these early chapters? And just as we start, we, we might be thinking, well, how do you read uh, the Old Testament? Well, the New Testament gives us some direction. There's a, a little quote from Paul's letter to Romans at the top of your page. And Paul writes this. He says, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. As straight away we, we see, don't we, the Old Testament. It's not, it's not a Jewish book. This is a book for Christians. It's a book for you, if you're someone who trusts and is following the Lord Jesus. And it's written for us to encourage us and give us hope. So over the next three weeks, that is at least some of what should be happening. Now, where are we with this book if we've just landed in it? Where are we and what's going on? Well, in those opening few verses, Deuteronomy tells us where we are and what's going on. And Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. This book is actually three big sermons followed by a long song that Moses sings. I thought perhaps I could do that tonight, give you three sermons and then just sing a big long song myself, but decided against it. Um, but, But that's what's going on in the book. And it takes place in the desert just east of the Jordan. The people are on the boundary of the promised land. And there's a little picture uh, on your sheet. It's sort of a map. It's not really to scale, and things don't really look like that. But I, I tried to draw it much better, but decided this would maybe be helpful enough. But God had rescued the people from slavery in Egypt. And he'd brought them to Mount Horeb. Then as a rescued people, he told them what it would mean to live in response to God's grace. Among other things, he gave them the Ten Commandments. Horeb is where that happened. Kadesh Barnea is the boundary of the promised land. And in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 1, we're told that the journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea takes 11 days by the Mount Seir Road. It's a bit of a journey, sand in the sandwiches, all that kind of stuff. But it's verse 3 that's a shock, isn't it? You just have a little look at that. Verse 3 In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded concerning them. Two quick things from that. First of all, obviously in this book, if it's forty years later, Moses is retelling a new generation of God's people what God has done for them. And secondly, something appears to have gone very, very wrong. See, 40 years for an 11-day journey is not good by anyone's standards. Now, these people are very late for a date, aren't they? So imagine if you would, there's a, a young single man here at Fullwood, and he starts to notice a lovely girl, spots her on the balcony. He's trying to be subtle about it, but he eventually asks her around for something to eat. She's keen, 
Um, but our first free evening is a, a week Thursday, 11 days time. Uh, what the heck, she's worth the wait. Give you a chance to practice the cooking. Uh, imagine his feelings though when she doesn't show up on Thursday, but on Friday, 2046. <laughs> she's 40 years late. He's in his 60s now, most of his teeth have fallen out, so it's soup for dinner. He's in bed by nine and he's not really feeling romantic anymore. Apologies to those of you in your 60s who still feel very romantic. See, verse 3 is meant to alert us, isn't it? Something's gone wrong. These people, for whatever reason, are very late for a date. And we'll come back to that in a moment. There are some encouraging signs, though. In verse 4, Moses is speaking to the people after he defeated two of their enemies. So that's, that's good. And we might be asking ourselves this question as well. If you've started to read the Bible and and thinking how it all fits together, well, where does Deuteronomy fit in the Bible? See, like any book in this collection, it it doesn't stand alone. It it fits into the larger Bible story, the story of God's plans. And back in Genesis, in chapter 12, after the world, through human, human sin, had spiraled, well, not out of control, but certainly into moral darkness, and God made a huge promise to a man called Abraham. I kind of summarized it again on your sheet. The Lord said to him, Go to the land I will show you. He said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you, and all people on earth will be blessed through you. At the start of Deuteronomy, well, it's centuries later. Uh, But here they are in verse 8. Just have a look at that. Go and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're they're on the edge of the promised land, aren't they? So here they are in verse 10. Just have a quick scan through that in verse 10. And you'll hear Moses saying these words to the people, You are as many as the stars in the sky. See, this one man, Abraham, has become a great nation. And we don't quite see yet how all people will be blessed, but what we are seeing at this stage in the Bible story is that God is working out his promises. The God of the Bible remembers his promises to you. That's an encouragement. It should make us want to check what his promises are, but if you think he's forgotten, think again. And it's probably worth consciously taking note of who Moses is speaking to. In verse 19 of chapter 1, he says this, Then as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb. The thing is you've spotted is, well, the people he's talking to weren't born or were young children when God gave that command originally. It was 40 years ago. But he still says God commanded us. Well, the point is, Moses is speaking to the people of God. God's commands apply to them as much as it did to their forefathers. What God, is, what God has said in the past... He is saying now. So Moses can talk about these people having heard God speak. The way they heard God speak was uh, through Moses retelling it. 
And the way we're hearing God speak is through Moses' written words, but we are hearing God speak to us. And we back to the story. Why are these people late for a date? Why do they seem to be having trouble enjoying God's rescue? Well, the answer comes in the, the second half of the chapter. It's no surprise, really. It's the problem people always have with God. It's sin. Just won't live God's way. But as Moses retells these events and applies them to this new generation, we learn something about sin for ourselves. If we're Christians wanting to live for God... If you've not done so already, turn over to the other side of your handout. There's some headings there for you. And here's the the first thing we'll just notice from this passage tonight. Uh, we, We sin when we don't trust God and we give way to fear. Verses 16 to 36. See, sin in this part of the Bible looks a kind of particular way. I guess you could say it has a specific shape to it. It's rebellion. Now that's how it's described. And the people, they rebelled against God, not once but twice here, two rebellions, different motivations. Here's the first one. And the people get to the boundary of the promised land and they're to trust, put their faith in God's promises. Go and take the land that he's promised to them. And Moses retells the incident in verses 19 to 24. Let me just summarize it for you. You can scan through if you want, but I'll I'll summarize it. It all starts well enough, an idea to send spies to search out the land. The report comes back in verse 25. It is a good land, just as the Lord promised. Just the way he said, it it is a good land. But it's here that things start to go wrong. Because another report is heard in verse 28. The people are taller and stronger than us. And at the end of verse 28, there's an odd line, isn't there? You just look at the end of verse 28 and you'll hear these words. We even saw the Anakites there. And you think, oh, that's nice, isn't it? The Anakites, I'm sure they're lovely, but it doesn't really mean much to us. But there were a a few people groups around that seemed to be big unusually large giants and there were the Anakites the Amites, the Rephaites you see those names and you need to be thinking more Gareth Rowe our youth worker than Paul Williams our vicar that, that's the kind of in actual fact probably double Gareth Rowe that, that's what you've got to be thinking there and you see what the people are saying in verse 29 and the people are taller and stronger than we are The cities are large with walls up to the sky. They're too high. Their cities are too high. We can't do it. And as you read through this story, fear leads to grumbling in verse 27, which leads to doubting God's character. God hates us, which leads on to refusing encouragement, verse 29, and eventually to distrust and rebellion, verse 32. And the consequence? Oh, they're forbidden from entering God's promised land. It's a window into what sin does to us. Why why do we sin? Well, some of the time the cause will be fear. You start to think that living God's way, well, you're going to lose out. You'll not be saved. God doesn't really have your best interest at heart. It is fear, isn't it? A living for God doesn't seem 
to be delivering the things you want and you start to grumble about it. Harboring thoughts that he doesn't love you, can't protect you, think there's a a better way to live. Have you noticed that in yourself? Fear over certain things. Oh, I'm going to miss out here. It'll be rubbish. And it leads on to grumbling. I'm missing out as a Christian. This situation will never change. It's not fair. Or maybe you just make some moral compromise. And because if you see, if God is going to let you down, why should you even bother? Where's the solution to that attitude? Well, it's in the one place that the Israelites refused to look. Do you see where Moses tries to take them back to in verse 30? And Moses says this to them, The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. So he tries to take them back to the rescue. He's saying to them, why are you doubting God? Look what he's done. God's past rescue guarantees future safety even through present difficulties. So what about us? See, the rescue we look back to is not a rescue from Egypt. It's a rescue from sin and death. A rescue achieved before the eyes of the watching world at the cross. In a sense, Moses could say to us, the Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Jesus on the cross before your very eyes. Why are you doubting God? Look what he's done for you. We know this life is hard. Christians in this life will, will always face difficulties. The place God's taking us to is his renewed and perfect creation. We'll not be there till Jesus comes back. That's when we'll enter our promised land that the Old Testament nation of Israel was like a signpost to. This is a sin-spoiled world. And there is real hardship. And more than that, we are tainted with sin. And so we respond to hardship sinfully, don't we? When things get difficult, we say to God, this is too hard to trust you. The problem is too high, it's too big, I won't do it your way. Are you facing something like that at the moment? That is making you want to give up on following God? I get things like that too, honest. So there's a question for you and for me, isn't there? How good are we at accepting encouragement? Will you learn from the mistake of God's people in the Old Testament? Will you accept encouragement? Where do we look for it? God's past rescue at the cross guarantees future safety, even through present difficulties. We need to be asking each other, don't we, where where are you fearful living for Jesus? Where where are you starting to give way to fear? You'll spot some of them Because they'll be where you're grumbling. Where we're complaining that God's way is too hard. And we spot those things, then we need to remind one another of what Jesus has done. And what he's promised. Jesus remembers his promises to you. We should check that we know what those promises are. Let the cross convince you that God loves you. How is it that Paul puts it in Romans? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for his all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? A journalist in Gaza last week who were set free after they said publicly that they'd converted to Islam. I don't think they were, they were Christian men, but it did make me wonder what I would do in that situation. You can save your life, you can go free if you tell the world you've converted to Islam. Would I bottle it? Would I renounce Jesus? Or have I understood the encouragement of the cross that my life is really safe so I don't need to fear losing it? See, for me, I have to think, never mind renouncing Jesus on the streets of Gaza. I bottle it on the street where I live. I'm so slow to talk about Jesus, even with my neighbours. Well, here's the second thing. We sin because we think we know better than God. Verses 27 to 46. Uh, The second rebellion is different, but it's still a rebellion. Uh, The cause this time comes out in verse 43 is is arrogance. The people presume they know better than God. Uh, Again, let me summarize the incident as it occurs in verses 41 to 45. The people had rebelled against God. And God had told them that this generation will now not enter the land. And they're to go back into the desert. So now, after God expressly tells them not to fight, they do the opposite. And they're beaten. See, in one sense, just looking at them, they could look as if they are obeying God. Well, they're, they're fighting for the land now. But they're rebelling. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? It it is possible to be engaged in Christian activity and at the same time be arrogantly rebelling against God, doing things that look Christian, but not doing them God's way, refusing to listen to his word. There's nothing more depressing than being around people who will confidently tell you we're doing this for God, but will not accept any correction. See, for some of us, our danger is we're so frightened about what others will think that we refuse to obey God. Our lives, because of fear, are rebellious. But for some of us, caught up with the enthusiasm of our own ideas, we hardly notice when enthusiasm becomes arrogance. So that when someone asks a question about what we're doing, we'll say, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. So be humble listen to God's word and listen to people who listen to God's word so there's a question for you and me again when was the last time we let God's word from God's people correct our thinking and actions now where do you think you'll struggle most fear or arrogance I think for me it's both at different times and often both at the same time And it is ironic, isn't it, when you think about the people of Israel, that what they could have avoided by not giving way to fear happens to them because they're arrogant. It's regularly the way with sin, isn't it? We try to make a secure life for ourselves without God, whether it's in relationships or to do with work or with money, and we muck it up. So that brings us to the last thing. Uh, What to do when you've messed up? 
It is a bit of a disaster for the people. They didn't fight when they should have fought. They fought when they shouldn't have. They've rebelled against the God who only wants to rescue them. And what do you do when you've messed up? Especially when God is not listening to your prayers. You see that in verse 45? Moses says, You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. He's not listening. So what do you do when you've messed up? Well, chapters 2 and 3 show us if you were to read through them. Question, what do you do when you've messed up? Well, the answer is you start to trust God. Oh, the next question, how do you know if you're trusting God? Well, the answer, you start to do what he says. You get that? In chapter 1 and verse 40, God had said, But as for you, turn round and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. But they rebelled. Now, at last, they start to get it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then we turned back and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. A real trust for God shows itself in obedience. We're never saved by doing good things for God. We're, We're saved by putting our faith, our trust in his gracious rescue. There's no real faith or trust in God that doesn't start to obey him. And Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. For it's by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And this, it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. A free gift for you. Not by works, so that no one can boast. There's no room for arrogance. And then he goes on to say, for we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. When God saves a person, he fixes us up so that we can live for him. If you call yourself a Christian here tonight, there should be some evidence of you starting to obey God, wanting to do what he says. If you call yourself a Christian... But you're not interested in doing what he says. In fact, you just kick against it all the time. You've got no time for it. The Bible says you're you're probably not a Christian yet. Now, I know there's different types of people here. We we respond to things like that differently. I've said this before, I think. But I ask you the question, what what type of biscuit do you prefer? Rich tea or, or McVitie's hobnobs? Some of you are like rich tea biscuits, aren't you? And some of you are like hobnobs. We're all different. Some of, some of you have got really tender consciences. You've got the conscience equivalent of a rich tea biscuit. One dip and you fall apart. <laughs> See, if that's you, you're already thinking about the things you do wrong and you're going all weak, starting to dissolve. Look, don't fret. We're not saying perfection is required here, but... Can you see some evidence that as you trust God, you want to turn from sin and not rebel? That you take his word seriously? Well, good. Keep going with that. See, others of us, you might be like me, we've got the consciences that are more like McVitie's hobnobs. We'll soak up whatever comes at us and it takes ages for anything to soften us. 
See, your conscience may not feel the pressure too quickly, so you need to really think, am I responding to God's word? If I'm not changing, if his word isn't starting to look appealing to me, I've got to ask myself, am I really trusting him? I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but boy, if that's us, we really need to pray and ask for his help. By the start of chapter 2, the people of Israel are beginning to learn their lesson. They trust their rescuing God and they do what he says. It's a good start. If you read through those two chapters, you'll see that when God says don't fight, they don't fight. And when he says fight, they fight and they win. And along the way, just as God said, the old generation die in the desert, all except Joshua, Caleb and Moses. God keeps all his promises. And one last thing is that as the people start to trust and obey, obedience gives them, this people, a much clearer perspective on things. Do you remember what they were afraid of in chapter 1 in verse 28? The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. See, but now as they trust and obey, just have a look down at chapter 2 and verse 36. Moses will record these words as they trust and obey from Aroyer, I think that's how you say it, on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, even as far as Gilead. Not one town was too strong for us. It's the end of the summer and the beginning of the autumn. They usually feel like a kind of fresh start to me. Facing the future. Living for God. I don't know what your summer's been like. What, what do you do if you've messed up? What do you do if you've had a rubbish summer? Well, stop giving in to fear. Trust your rescuing God. Don't be arrogant. Treat his word carefully. And start to do what he says. Living for God always begins with trusting him for forgiveness. So why don't I pray for us before we sing our final hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the books of the Old Testament. Sometimes we, uh, we find them hard to understand, but thank you, you've written them there for us to teach us and encourage us. I thank you, Lord, for showing us a bit more of what sin's like in our lives when we, when we give way to fear or when we're arrogant. And thank you most of all for giving us the example through the people of Israel that there is a way back. There are things to do when we've messed up to start to trust you and to obey you. Please help us to do that by responding to the Lord Jesus, to seek his forgiveness, and to want to live enjoying his grace and love. Amen.